Good morning and welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation, promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming, and empowering you, our listeners, to knowing, being, and impacting the world around you. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. It is 10 years of this illuminating journey. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. You're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. Follow us on all our social media, Facebook, Zero Network on Facebook, Twitter, at Zero Radio, and my personal handle, Lorenzo T. Neal. Go to my website, LorenzoTNeal.com, and wherever else we can be found, we are found on all your podcast outlets all over this social world. Thank you for joining us. It is 10 years, 10, 10 wonderful years that we've been doing this show, 10 fabulous years that we have been making noise (laughs) what began as a summer hobby has turned into a global media outlet hundreds of thousands of persons listening around the globe Uh, we got listeners in countries tanzania in canada in south africa pakistan india and of course here in the states we just thank you so much for you you Thinking it not robbery to take time out to listen to this show, and we're so great. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful because it has afforded me a lot of opportunities and platforms to share my uh, thoughts, opinions, and whatever else I have that may not be worth much. <laughs> so I'm so excited that uh, we're able to do this. We have been able to do it for the last ten years. So uh, today, I'm going to play a couple of clips. From some shows and um, as well as talk about the topic of the day and uh, I, I just want you guys to join me along for the ride down memory lane because I tell you it's it's been an interesting ride these last 10 years from wonderful guests some very uh, unique perspectives on topics ranging from politics to education to uh, of course black church and theology and all of that and I've just been privileged and gracious to be able to share that on this platform so without further ado we're going to take a walk down memory lane and we're going to listen to the very first show the very first show I got to turn my phone on silent uh, so I won't get too many interruptions I get a lot of notifications but we're going to we're going to play this very the clip from the very first show. And I tell you, when I tell you this first show was crazy, I think I uh I know I used a uh I think I used my telephone for the first show, but I tried to do recording and I had a I had a mic but it was just working out, so I just used the telephone. Block Talk Radio provided that outlet. And anyway, take a listen to this first show. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. Uh, this is Pastor Lorenzo Neal, and I would like to welcome you to the first broadcast of Zira. Zira is a show that is dedicated to showing, sowing seeds of knowledge to you, our listening audience. Our motto is, we believe that you can accomplish life knowing, being, doing, and impacting. Knowing who you are, who you are, and what you're capable of, being that to the fullest, doing what God has called you to do and empowered you to do through His Word, and impacting the lives of the world around you. We'll be talking about various things in this broadcast. We'll cover, of course, a lot, a lot of uh, theological concepts, spiritual concepts, uh, social political concepts, and how they revolve around the church. We want you to take your time out just to listen, and there's a number you'll be able to call, and you'll be able to uh, have a dialogue with us. We want everybody who's listening to be a part of this program. Listen, we know God is doing a good thing for everybody. It doesn't matter what it seems like. We know that He is doing it for you, and we want you to know that God has your back. You're not in this alone. You don't have to do anything by yourself. God is with you. 
and just because he's with you, you're able to do more than you think you do. So welcome to Zero. Take your time to listen, and participate, share, and all that God has put on our hearts, and we are looking forward to uh, being a blessing to as many as we possibly can. So as you hear from that first clip, you you, <laughs> you, you can see I, I I didn't really know what I was doing, but I still did what I did. And, and, um, I'm proud of it. I, I'm, I think I did pretty good. What about you? What about you? <laughs> um, and um, I went on to talk about a few other things. And mind you, um, I, I didn't intend for this to really go too far past the summer. Um you know, that's what teachers do. When we don't have anything for the summer, we just find stuff to do. And I found that to do uh, during that summer break. And I'm grateful that I was able to do that. And, and she can hear, you know, I, I think I stepped up my game a little bit. The second clip I want to play to you, for you is uh, one of my favorite interviews. And I have uh, I have a, a lot of them that I, I really love. But this one was from... Um, uh, Greg Gray, who is the author of Dads from a Distance and also the founder of Renaissance uh, Unlimited. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a, he's a well-around great guy. And he, I in, invited him on the show after reading about his book. And I was like, wow, this sounds very interesting. I need to, uh, I need to have him on as a guest and I had him on as a guest and we talked about the genesis of the book and the meaning of the book and what he was trying to get across uh, for those fathers who uh, do not share or do not who are not physically present in their children's lives whatever reason or another and um, he goes on he talks about that in the book so I'm going to play this clip from my interview with him is just a short clip and he just basically gives a synopsis of the book and the genesis of the book and I'm gonna play this clip and uh, hopefully we will get back on track but I just I just want to have a little walk down memory lane like hey it's worth it so here is that clip in my invitation and, and coming on I, I, I tell you I just want to thank you so what I want to do, I want to take this time. I want you to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, okay. uh, who you are, what you do, and then we're going to get into the book. Because uh, I tell you, I love the book. I, I read it again. Excuse me. I read it again, and it's it's something I think is phenomenal. So you go ahead. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Okay. Well, uh, again, thanks a lot for having me on on the show. Uh, and uh, you know, sometimes things that happen at the last minute happen exactly the right way. So I'm uh, thrilled to join you. Uh, the uh, just a little bit about me. I and it's actually not going to be totally in sync with the book, but uh, it'll come together in a moment. I actually own a seminar and speaking firm, as you mentioned, called uh, Renaissance Unlimited, and uh, we do seminars and on leadership and communication and customer service and all that good stuff. And for years, I've had a lot of clients and uh, customers uh, encourage me to write a book. And uh, for those folks that are listening, if you've ever tried to write even a term paper, you have an idea about how difficult it is uh, You to don't have to book. remember. Remind uh, me, yeah. I just finished my thesis. Okay. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. But yeah. what was interesting is the book that – came out of my fingers had nothing to do with leadership or communications or customer service per se. It really had to do with my relationship uh, with specifically, in this case, with um, my youngest daughter, my daughter Danielle, uh, and uh, and our relationship over the years. Uh, the, the book, Dad from a Distance, is titled that way because Danielle's mom and I divorced actually when she was six. She's 22 now. But it was uh, kind of a reflection, as I think we tend to do when we get a little older, to look back and see what we did well, what we didn't do so well, and maybe uh, possibly find a way to, to help somebody else benefit from the things that we've learned. So that's kind of the crux of where Dad from a Distance comes from, and, uh, and it was uh, quite a journey. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, now, you say it doesn't have anything to do <laughs> with – with it, but uh, I I I know that uh, relationships are very important, and right. relationships contribute to actually how successful uh, any business. Or All right, so that was the last clip that I'm going to share. But uh, as we go through the rest of the the year, I guess I got plenty of clips, so I'll be sharing uh, clips from past shows, past interviews, all that, as I, time go forward. But I just wanted to share those couple of clips um, just because I wanted to. <laughs> no particular reason at all. I got to get my, my chair is so creaky, you know. I, I hate the squeaky sound. Maybe I get some, uh, what is it, WR42, whatever, <laughs> WD42, or something, get the squeaking out. But anyway, um, so I just... Uh, I've been trying to record this for uh, several times and just hadn't gone right. And um, so this is my last shot. I'm going to go ahead and record it. And however it comes out, it comes out. It might not be a full hour broadcast. Might, may or may not be. But uh, because since, I, uh, since the previous recordings, a lot has happened. And I want to touch on as much as what has happened um, over the last week two weeks in particular and I think it's just been spectacular but I am still the topic of the day is um, black power versus black lives matter what's the what's the goal what's the end goal but um before we get deep into that I want to celebrate and commend uh, the legislators for the state of Mississippi the Mississippi State House representatives and the Mississippi State Senate for a very, very courageous move that happened this weekend. For those of you who are unaware, Mississippi is the only uh, state in the country whose flag still has the Confederate emblem within it. And um, uh, if you know, five years ago, South Carolina had it, the Confederate flag flying over their capital. They took it down. Most southern states at one time had the Confederate emblem as state flags or a part of their state flag. And Mississippi was the last holdout. And on this weekend, both the House of Representatives and the state Senate voted to change the state flag. Now, uh, this has been presented to the state before. And it was presented by way of a ballot vote, and um, about 63% of people in 2001 voted to retain the flag, 
uh, and that flag was, I think it was from 1894, from, it's from the 19th century. And, you know, Mississippi was one of the Confederate states. And also, when you think of the imagery of Mississippi, you think of Klan, you think of uh, segregation, you think of so much. And uh, Ole Miss, Ole Miss's University of Southern uh, of Mississippi mascot was a rebel for the longest. Um, and they've changed it now. But it was it was really hard hitting when several agencies several businesses and a whole lot of people just said it's enough it's time for change and most of the white people who were presenting an argument to keep the flag the primary argument was let us vote on it and i completely i was with them on that you know let's let's vote but i also know that when it comes to initiatives and referendums like that, a lot of people don't turn out to vote. <laughs> and, and so that I believe that's one way they, they got it passed in the last election because, again, it was a referendum. It wasn't during the presidential election. It was, it was an off-center uh, election. No, was it during a governor election? I believe it may have been. But either way, it did not pass. And the fear those people had was that um, the state legislature changing the flag without the people voting on it was uh, one unjustifiable and two caving in to some other party you know not to the interest of the people but to the interest of the public of cry outcry whatever but I laud you you got to believe a lot of Republicans stood up and said, look, we just got to change. And I think part of it was the SEC saying Mississippi won't host any, 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 any uh, events sponsored by the SEC. You know, SEC is the uh, probably the premier athletic league, college athletic league in the country. And that was one thread. And then you had several. Uh, you know, organizations, you know, university presidents and um, not just the uh, pro-black people organizations, you know, NAACP or anything like that. This came internally from a lot of people who were just like, this is not representative of who we are as part as Mississippians. And a lot of people, when they come to Mississippi, they are surprised. We're called the hospitality state for a reason, you know. The people here are wonderful, and yes, there is still pockets. I I would not deny that there are still pockets of racism here in the state. Uh, we know that the Klan is still very active in the state. I know, especially down in uh, some southern counties, and and a whole lot in the northern counties, uh, the Delta area of Mississippi. They're very much active. You can't deny that. But they're a very very small majority, and their voice is small. And yes, there are still some people in suits and dresses who um, have racist tendencies, who are in public uh, leadership, and you just can't deny that. But I believe overall uh, those legislators, especially those Republicans who stood up and voted to change the emblem, to change the state flag, did so out of strong conviction uh, and spoke for the majority of Mississippians who want to see uh, the state imagery change. And that says a lot. If Mississippi, the last stronghold of the Confederacy, can do that, I believe America can do uh, so much more. And, and here's the other thing I want to point out. In all these major cities where rioting has broken out, we, we see in the South, with the exception of Atlanta, Overall, in the South, there have been very little violence, very little rioting, and uh, a lot of protests, though. Still been plenty of protests. But for the most part, they've been peaceful. They've been reconciliatory, reconciliatory with the intention of getting people on the same page regarding uh, racial reconciliation. And that is powerful. 
So I, I just wanted to take this moment to uh, applaud the Mississippi legislature and in advance applaud uh, Governor Tate Reeves, who has said publicly that he will sign this into law. He won't veto it. And I, I know it contradicts something he said uh, as he was campaigning, but you got to know politicians are politicians. And uh, no one foresaw all the events that were happening in 2020. And I give commendations to uh, Governor Tate Reeves for his leadership during this coronavirus. You got to understand, <laughs> he came into leadership. Mississippi <laughs> was facing a, uh, a terrible terrible uh, jail conditions in our state prisons uh, conditions were great or horrible it was riding there and he came in and had to deal with that right off the bat and then right after that right after that we had serious flooding across the state in here in my city and if you I don't know if I shared it in public but my house flooded twice in less than two weeks and I mean flooded. I'm talking about an inch of water, if not more, in my house. And he had to deal with that. And then <laughs> right after that, he had to deal with the coronavirus <laughs> uh, and a couple other incidents. But, I, man, 2020 has been hard on everyone. So I offer commendations to him and to all the other governors who, who have been trying their best to govern in the midst of this craziness. And so you have to commend whether Democratic or, or Republican. You just have to commend that they're trying to do what they believe is best for their state. Um, and we're seeing now a lot of states are having to uh, retract some of the um, freedoms. <laughs> uh, you know, they're going to have to go back to uh, sheltering in place and uh, uh, restrictions because, you know, once we got a taste of freedom, we just took advantage of it. And I speak about we in general, not not specifically. Um, and once once uh, Memorial Day hit, they were like, "Yeah, we free." <laughs> but I said all that to say that if Mississippi, if the, the leaders in Mississippi, the legislators in Mississippi, can have the courage, and I'm not talking about the black legislators, it was already expected that they would do so. I'm talking about. I'm talking about the white legislators, both across both parties, who realize uh, that that emblem brought more pain than um, pleasure. So, commendations to Mississippi, and I'm looking forward to uh, the commission bringing forth new flag ideas, and looking forward to voting on that new flag idea. And um, they want to put in God I trust on there. Um, and I am not. They want to put in God I trust on there. I, I, I don't want to do that. It's not that I'm not a good loving God loving Christian or anything like that. God fearing Christian. I'm just wary of this. You know. One. Separation of church and state. Two. We 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 have to again. We got to be all inclusive. Everybody in Mississippi ain't Christian. <laughs> we do have Sikhs here. We have Muslims here. We have um, we have Buddhists here. We have everybody here, and we have a lot of atheists. I didn't realize how many atheists we have in this state, but they're growing. They're growing population, and uh, so we just have to. Be wary of that because they'll be the first ones launching, <laughs> launching a, 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 a suit campaign, a lawsuit campaign against the state. But anyway, I digress. More power to all of those. And uh, I just am grateful that that we're going forward. And while I say that, I know that the world is still in disarray. The state is, the country is still in disarray and there's not much we can do. But uh, what I can tell you this. Is that. This too. Shall pass. Definitely. This too shall pass. So. Let's move forward. And uh, move forward. In God's strength. And love. So yeah. I think I 
rambled enough about that for a second. I'm going to take a quick break. Um, just play a couple of ads. Because I said, this is not going to be a long broadcast. I don't want it to be long. I want to get to the point and um, shut my mouth. So, yeah, do that right after I take this break. I'm Dr. Lorenzo O'Neill, and I like to speak with my fellow clergy about a way to enhance your life and ministry. Are you looking to better connect with yourself and those you minister to? When was the last time you explored your emotional intelligence and health? I want to offer you my service as a coach and counselor. I've developed a six-week coaching program with a specific focus on self-differentiation. My background in education, leadership, and community counseling psychology gives me a unique look to the connection between our emotional wellness and our ministry. Blending spiritual principles with a family system's approach to ministry, I will help you become a highly self-differentiated person with a ministry that is engaging, liberating, and transforming. Contact me at PastorLorenzoNeal at gmail.com to schedule your first session with me. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and working with you to serve this present age and to fulfill and engage all yourself to do your master's will. Blessings. You may find it hard to believe, but at one point in your life, you're going to need access to reliable legal services. Legal issues can be confusing, complicated, and even a bit embarrassing. That's why I joined the family at Legal Shield. Legal Shield offers the most affordable, comprehensive legal coverage available. And for a small monthly fee, I have access to Legal Shield's personal plan that includes attorneys who will represent me and provide me advice, even draft and review documents on my behalf. Not only do they provide excellent legal service, but with their ID Shield, I'm also guaranteed protection from all fraud, including identity theft protection. Did I mention to you I have so many perks and benefits that come with being a member of Legal Shield? Yeah, they pretty much cover the plan by itself. For the last 45 years, Americans have trusted Legal Shield for all their legal needs, and I'm glad that I've joined them. So give them a call. Visit their website, www.legalshield.com. I'm telling you, you will be glad that you did. <laughs> to the topic of the day. Black Lives Matter is the thriving movement of the day. What we're seeing happening is a result of quote-unquote Black Lives Matter movement. And I did use air quotes because uh, uh, I said it before and I said it again, this is not about black lives, never has been about black lives. It's about uh, a movement that has been hijacked by non-black people to carry out their intersectionality agenda. And you ain't got to be <laughs> a right-wing conservative uh, pundit or nut job to, to see that for what it is. There's a difference between when I as a black man say black lives matter and someone who's non-marinated say it. Because it's coming from a whole different perspective. And I put this, I, I, I'm saying this because I want to put it in perspective of the black power movement of the 60s and the 70s and the late 80s, early 80s versus the black lives, my, black lives matter movement of the teens. The 2010s, you know, from 2014 until until now, what we've been seeing has been more of a disparity than than uh, in reaction than a call for 
real, real power, liberation. Black liberation in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s had a specific um, angle, outcome, all of that. So I want to draw on similarities between the two um, and and discuss what, what really could be the outcome for this Black Lives Matter movement and what was the outcome of the black liberation or black power movement. Okay. First of all, both were birthed out of reaction to social injustices against black people. That's that's that that is the that's the thing that they share in common. They were both birthed out of this reaction to the injustice Real injustice against black people. Now, with the black power movement or the black liberation movement, they were the more militant arm of the civil rights movement, birthed from the thoughts of Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and many others, Angela Davis, uh, what's Shakir, uh, I can't think of her name, Tupac's mother, um, and many others, and I could I could go on. Um, Asata Shakur, they, uh, um, and of course, when it comes to the the church or the religious aspect of it, we have James Cone, who uh, we call the founder of Black Liberation Theology. But they were all uh, all had a central theme, and that is black people need to do for themselves because the government cannot be trusted to do for us what they say you're going to do. Uh, the government, and from their perspective, it was the government that uh, allowed and was complicit, the national government as well as local uh, southern governments that were complicit in post-Reconstruction Jim Crow. The national leaders did nothing when the southern, uh, southern states began to put in laws constitutions that basically reverted black people back to indentured servanthood not slavery but indentured servanthood for the most part because they you know they couldn't own their own land even though Sherman General Sherman issued a uh, what was it the one that he was the one that issued the 40 acres um, edict war edict after he won the battle of Atlanta march through the south met with those leaders in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, the black leaders in Savannah, Georgia, and when he asked what did they want, they said they wanted land. And he, so he wrote the declaration giving them land. And they kept the land for a little bit, but those states reverted and basically took back the land. We had black senators. We had black congressmen. We had black, uh, all black towns. And this was not, it was not intentionally uh, in, intentionally to, to segregate in the way in the degree it was, you know, to prove that they would be they could be self sufficient. And so the black power, black liberation movement was specifically saying, we don't want the government, we don't trust the government, not even our Negro leaders. We don't trust none of them. We just want to be able to do for ourselves. And that's what they pushed, and they used the militant angle to do it. And you think about the Black Panthers, Huey P. Newton, and um, those leaders, that movement. They were anti-government, but they had some Marxist overtones. And, and when you think about, think about this, just think about this. In the 1960s and 50s and 60s, um, this new idea of black independence was spreading, not just in the United States, but across Africa, as many of those African nations that were colonized by uh, Europeans were becoming independent. And they were finding themselves in a new state of being. And the only ones who were really helping them were... Uh, Russia, pretty much, the, the socialists, the Marxists, the communist countries, and they were supplying them with the 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 means of not only uh, 
getting freedom, but maintaining freedom. Firearms, finances, and all of that stuff. Whereas uh, most of the Western countries either just, especially those European countries that were pour, pulling out, like, well, we'll just leave you alone. And the U.S., well, if they didn't like what was going on, they were trying to overturn those leaders. And in many cases, they did. <laughs> they overthrew a lot. The U.S. overthrew a lot of African leaders because they were leaning more towards socialists than capitalism. Now, that's a very broad statement, and I, I know some people counter-argument that that's fine, you know, that's, that's all good. But they did have Marxist views, and a large reason why they had Marxist views was because the U.S. and many other Western countries were seen as symbols of oppression, whereas Marxism uh, or, or communist countries were seen, they were progressing much. They, they seemed to be more progressive than the idea of equality. The, the idea of egalitarianism was, was, was necessary to help fuel an identity for these uh, burgeoning black uh, communities. So that's that's what they bought. That's what they drew from, the idea that if we're going to be self-sufficient, we don't need the government to do so, and because we don't need the government to do so, we need to have our own identity, and they they created that identity with the black power, raised fist, and all of that. They created that identity with the, um, and this was the time that Kwanzaa was brought in. You know, we started learning. Swahili and integrating it into our uh, black identity. We started naming our children with African names or name uh, African inspired names <laughs> as where we get all these Lucretias and all this stuff. Mashana and uh, Habibas and uh, I, I know a lot of them who have these African influence inspired names. Ayana and things like that. And they used it to their advantage. And they drew from that. And even within black liberation theology, Cone drew from the fact that systemic oppression, not by, not by God, but by the institution of God's church. Relegating not just black people, but all people to the back and saying, you're not really good enough, fair enough to Fully engage scripture, fully engage uh, a liberated life in Christ. And uh, we have to do it for you. (laughs) And they went against that. And they, they, and, and here's the other thing. They did that while being intersectional. When you look back over this, over the, the 50s, 60s, and the 70s, there was intersectionality. Now, here's the difference. They didn't blast it. When you look at the, the uh, March on Washington, 1963, where Dr. King gave his most famous speech that that's the only one that they remember, <laughs> most people remember. Well, one of the organizers of that was a black homosexual. Not only was he there, but he was the one who it basically... Uh, reminded Martin that Dr. King that he had to be involved and he had to speak. Not only that, but another organizer, A. Philip Randolph, was by this time an atheist. Uh, he had no no religious expression, and he had no shame in the fact that he you know he didn't believe in God or anything like. That. And mind you, he came out of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And, and so it was it's bold that he had uh, by this time <laughs> publicly professed, you know, I don't believe in God. God ain't got if I why would I believe in a God that supports this injustice? Why would I believe in a God and he had his reasons. I'm just kinda I'm being very general. This is not what he said. I'm just saying this it, that by the time of 
his death, he had uh, openly embraced uh, non-theism, atheism, however you want to call it. And so there was intersection, and they had white people there. White people were a major part of the movement, and they were sympathetic, and they knew their place. They didn't try to, <laughs> they did not try to uh, command and hijack the movement. They let the blacks lead, and they followed their leadership. They provided greater opportunities for exposure. That's what they did. And they, you know, they helped fund the movement, but they understood this is this is for black folk. And you know, no white guilt. I, I'm gonna be guilty, but I ain't gonna be letting everybody know. I'm not gonna be white washing black people's feet or shining black people uh, shoes to let them know that I am sympathetic and part of their cause. <laughs> More power to those who are doing that. If you want to kneel. Don't kneel in front of me. I'm just going to look at you like, okay, kneel before God. Confess before the Lord and let him empower you to do what He only he can do. Heal, restore, and change your, your heart and mind. So the, the black power, black liberation movement was, both, was birthed out of the reaction to the social injustices that blacks were experiencing. And they 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 formed a sense of identity based on uh, the blackness. They used blackness. They stopped calling themselves Negroes. They stopped calling themselves colored. They started calling themselves black to represent that black was not a negative connotation, a denotation of who they were, but an empowering one. And, you know, they had to fight the power. And that's what they did, and embraced the, they embraced it. They got so so much, it was so embraced that you started seeing the afros that was, you know, in response to the fact that, you know, I ain't going to perm my hair. Oh, I'm going to grow my hair out, and I'm going to do that. Bell-bottom jeans. The dashikis were becoming a part of the community and the culture and identity. And we that's when we begin to see the beginning of jive and what some would now call ebonics. We had our own language, our own culture, this self-identity. It's not that they didn't have it before. Movements are always birthed out of, you know, their descendants of other movements be before them. So the Black Liberation Black Power Movement was just a, it was just a, a another generation of awakening being expressed and articulated in a different form and you, you got to know those mothers and and grandfathers and grandparents of those kids back then the 60s and 50s 60s and 70s they weren't they weren't happy that the children were saying this and doing that they weren't they didn't want them marching they didn't want them out on the street a lot of them were afraid they stayed in a place because they were they were conditioned to know or believe that if they spoke out, they would die. Literally, they would die. They would literally die if they spoke out against any injustice. And there were plenty of injustices against blacks. You get get lynched for looking at a white woman the wrong way. Killed. Just think about Emmett Till and many others. Go to prison. If you had relationship with a white woman and it came to light, guess what? They were going to kill you or imprison you for life. And the white woman was going to be complicit in it. So black liberation, black power movement was birthed because of that. And the ideas of it was, I mean, I grew up in those ideals. My my aunts listened to the music. They wore the dashikis. They were exposed to it enough to help me be exposed. And you know, you saw it in Soul Train. You saw it in other other things. You heard it in the music. And so, I I was blessed to be able to grow up during the last stages of that movement, and see it as as it died out and people began to acclimate 
to the newness of integration. Acclimate to the ability to be able to move out of the, 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 the hood into the suburbs. And now many of those suburbs <laughs> are hoods. Uh, it's, it's just crazy. So that, that, that's the Black Liberation Movement. And when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, again, birth out of a reaction of social injustice against Black people, particularly Black men, when it came to engagement with uh, law enforcement or vigilantes or any injustice. We saw, you, you know, particularly after Trayvon Martin and the the angst that young blacks and I got to give credit to these young blacks who were standing boldly proclaiming um, uh, particularly three women um, Patrice Culture uh, Callers I think that's how you say her name Alicia Garza Opal Topaz uh, no not Topaz why I say Topaz uh, what's her name uh, it starts with T Tamidi Tamidi or something like that who after Trevon they began the hashtag Black Lives Matter and the hashtag spurred uh, you know a, a, a growing movement rallying behind this death of this young black boy and then of course after several other incidents throughout the teens uh, 2000 teens we saw a rise in this movement and every time a rally or riot happened after the death of an unarmed black man. I was like, this should be sufficient. This should be enough. The people should wake up and they should see the value of uh, of changing the culture, not just in the policing, but the culture and together, together and all together engaging black people, but particularly black young men. Um, and that's that really hasn't happened. That hasn't changed at all. We. We still have the same imagery when it comes to black. And what makes it worse, with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, global movement. And I got to be specific because there's the Black Lives uh, Matter and then there's the Black Lives Matter global movement. That's the, that's the uh, arm of it. That's the organized arm of it. That's the one that's being funded by billionaires, millionaires, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Um, but at the local at the local level, the engagement is still the same. You know why a lot of people people, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but you know why a lot of white people are jumping on the bandwagon of Black Lives Matter and putting forth these ideas of going to extremes of helping black people is because they see black people as unable to help themselves. And when you see black communities unable to help themselves, you have this sense of duty. And and this is where I get to my Kantian philosophy. Um, and I mentioned it, I think, before in the last broadcast. But when when it, when it comes to duty, it's interesting because as Manuel Kant. Uh, you know, most, we, we want to be utilitarian. Ideally, it would be utilitarian of us. The, the Black Lives Global Movement is a utilitarian movement, ideally. But at the same time, uh, it engages in ethics of uh, categorical imperative. And... Um, the ethics of duty. And when I talk about, when, when Kant puts it in this perspective, well, l let me let me go back. Uh, um, I, I, when I talk about utilitarianism, okay, utilitarianism is, for those of you who don't know, um, um, It's basically the idea that the actions are right if they're useful for the benefit of a majority. And that's just a, you go to a basic dictionary, you'll find that. So, uh, 
if the actions are right, if they're going to benefit the majority of people. In the way Black Lives Matter movement is presented to the general public is that actions denouncing um, negative police interactions with black people is will benefit the majority. And that's true. There's some truth to that. It, not only will it benefit black people, but should benefit uh, the majority. Police reforming, policing reforming, and all of that should benefit the majority, not just the minority. And, uh, and, and the consequence of that would be a better engaged law enforcement system across the board. Of course, we know that is ideal, but that may never happen. May never happen at all. So we can't expect a utilitarian uh, outcome because it, it will. It's just not really feasible. But um, when it, when it, it, there's a a duty component to this. That um, I draw from Immanuel Kant that basically says that, um, how can I put it? People have a duty to act accordingly to uh, consequences. Um, well, they have a duty to act. When, um, how, no, no, let me, let, me, let me put it this way. The, the act of an individual, or particularly the moral act of an individual, is determined by that individual's will, the, the freedom to act, the freedom to, to will, uh, the freedom tag, and it is that freedom tag that is in pretty much the only thing that can be considered good. And when that good is exercised according to the that individual's moral duty or moral imperative, so these. White people advocating and working and doing all of this on behalf of Black Lives Matter, they have this sense of moral duty to do so because they believe, and rightly so, there's a great dis, uh, disconnect and disjunct between how blacks are perceived overall, not just by police. Overall, the perception is that black people have overall been systematically uh, dealt and handled wrong. And that's true, we have been. But it's also um, them sensing that they have to, they have to do it because they have a moral obligation to do so. And the moral obligation then becomes the action, the act. So coming to the rescue of a black person or a black group cause or black cause is therefore their moral and ethical duty. And that's about as far as it goes. They just have to have the sense of moral and ethical duty to do something. And that should be, especially if you're Christian, everybody should have that. Everyone should have that sense of responsibility and moral fortitude to do something. If In the case of injustices against someone or something. So, But again, that 
is driven. It depend. It depends on what it's driven by, because for the most part, it's driven by a poor perception of black ability. What separates the Black Lives Matter movement now and the Black Liberation movement of then is the fact that black people understood in the Black Liberation movement they could only do it themselves. They had a moral and ethical duty to do it for themselves. Now, if anybody came in and helped them, they could join. But again, it was for themselves. This day and age, the Black Lives Matter movement, the intersectionality has become the entirety of the movement. So now you have, you have to include black queer black LGBTQIA and everything else and you have to include all the other all the other aspects of the intersectionality because if you don't then it is those persons who will usually join and advocate based out of simple moral do, moral and ethical duty would not do so because now they have to have something to buy into it and so you see allies, you know, groups, and all these allied groups are fighting for the entirety of recognition. And that's why I say the movement has been hijacked. And um, so that's, that's, that's the other reason why there's no direct goal the black liberation movement had clear objectives self-sufficiency black owned this black governed that black educated this whereas the black lives global movement because it's so focused on intersectionality has no specific goals or no specific outcome to include more of this, you know, more uh, LBGQ engagement in the public sector to do this, this, this in the public sector goes back to the idea of government being a benevolence. Whereas the black liberation of black power movement didn't see it that way. Government was a hindrance. Governance, governance, government was a hindrance. And we had to create our own sense of government and while we were being elected to higher levels of state and federal government and local government also that did not take away from the need for us to be our own to have our own agenda and we've seen over the last 40 years in particular and especially over the last 30 years that black agenda uh, slowly get pushed to the back of the national frame of thought. And we saw openly during the term of the first black president, Obama, President uh, Barack Obama, we saw that black agenda was, was never a part of his agenda. He was, he was an intersectional president. He wanted to see more for immigrants. He wanted to see more for uh, those of the um, LGBTQ community. And his policies reflected that. His domestic policies reflected that. He wanted to see less of, I won't say capitalism. He wanted to see less of capitalism, but I won't say national black development because he, he with it, didn't really do much for black development when he had the means to do so and now we see a a president who as crazy as he is seemingly under his administration seemingly uh, greater benefits toward blacks have come out but at the same time there is still a great lack of pure black centered policies, policy makers, and uh, goals. So, so till we get to that point, the Black Lives 
movement, global movement, is just going to fizzle out and become a, uh, a part of a, another larger thing. And we, again, be relegated to the back once, you know, if they're talking about defunding or all this with the police. But, again, that's not the, that's not the matter. That's not the issue. Defunding the police is not the issue. You know, you're talking about generations of legislative policies geared towards diminishing the power, the economic power, the educational power of black communities. That's what has to come up, be addressed. If Black Lives Matter movement doesn't address that part of it, then the intersectionality part of it doesn't matter. It, it That's irrelevant. So, anyway, I think I've done it on Franny for the day. Um, let me know what you think about that. I, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on what, what I said, if it made any sense to you. I, I applaud the Black Lives Matter movement. I applaud um, some of the leaders of it. Ta-Nisi uh, Ta, Ta Coates and his writings are, are, are awesome. Um, um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to say this about Sean King. Sean King, <laughs> a Morehouse man, as a Morehouse man can be, uh, is doing more damage for black folk in helping us. You know, Sean King was a pastor, and now he's just an advocate and political uh, pundit. And it's not working. <laughs> to, it's not working for him. But I digress. I'm sorry. Brother King, keep doing what you're doing. I I, I know you, you're sincere and, and all. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, we got to get away from the Black Lives Matter movement, global matter movement. Black Lives Matter global movement has to get away from this idea of intersectionality. They have to get away from the anti-capitalist perspective. They got to get, you know, if they're going to focus on social justice, particularly when it comes to police engagement, law enforcement, all of that, that's an entire system. It's not just uh, locality municipalities disbanding their police or you know doing better training in it no 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 that that's that's when you get the word systemic that's where that is that's where it comes in that's where you got to make change you know that takes a, a good generation because those people have to relearn and reperceive they have to see it differently and you can't force people to do that i know we like to believe, and we've been conditioned to believe that once the civil rights movement kicked off, white people just began, after seeing it on television, they just began to change. But no, that's not the truth. They didn't. Yes, people want to believe that this officially ended in the 60s, but no, it didn't. <laughs> it did not. It has not ended. It will not end. Until we demand as black communities, we demand greater from our black leaders first. They're first and foremost. Before we go out to any white folk, our black leaders, got to call them and check. Got to say, hey, y'all been doing it for yourselves, lining your pocketbooks, just voting along the blocks, voting block and falling in line. With stuff you know you don't agree with. And yet you, you. You are complicit in allowing it to happen. That's who we start with. And then. Move out. Once we get this. More fortitude to say. To our own communities. We got to do better. Yeah we're going to talk about. White. Unarmed shootings. White shootings of unarmed black men. But we got to talk about these. Black on black crimes. Domestic violence. When our black men are killing our black women or causing harm to them physically. Or abortion. When our black women are being told that they can just abort on demand. You know, if they don't want to have a child, just abort. Not for many any medical reason or if they've been raped. 
or when we have to forcing our children to go to schools because we don't allow them the opportunity for school choice and we've been programmed conditioned to fight against public charter schools I don't understand it but that's neither here nor there all right I've rambled on you guys have a great day and again I want to invite you to support us become a patron for as little as a dollar a month or go to patreon.com slash Lorenzo T. Neal support us on the show follow us on all social media on, the, on Facebook the Zero Network Twitter at Zero Radio and of course just look at Google me Lorenzo T. Neal Pastor Lorenzo T. Neal that would be the best results I guess follow me on my social media thank you so much for your support we appreciate you I appreciate you um. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you. You guys have a great day.